Hi, and welcome to the Reef Roundup podcast, where we dive into marine conservation stories from around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Graham. And I'm Tamara, and we can't wait to dive into this episode. Join us and meet some of the many amazing people who are doing exciting work to save the ocean for future generations, with a focus on restoration, ecology, and environment. We hope today's show is a wake-up call, but also brings you both hope and inspiration as you learn about the amazing work that's being done and how you too can be an ocean champion. Let's get started. Today we are excited to welcome Simon Young to the Reef Roundup podcast and radio show. Simon is a volcanologist, uh, someone who studies volcanoes, who went diving in the aftermath of a volcano and hurricane and realized the need for quick remediation of damaged coral reefs. He now works for WTW, a risk advisory company, and is helping to pilot a new type of coverage called parametric insurance, which we'll go into detail about in the episode. It's a pleasure to have Simon with us today, and let's get started. So Simon, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be interested in this field? Sure. So my name is Simon Young, and I currently work for a company called WTW, which is in the risk advisory and insurance business. And I co-lead a team which works on disaster risk finance and parametric insurance instruments. And that's a team that that crosses over a lot with the development and conservation spaces. So looking at innovative ways to deploy insurance kind of thinking and tools and products to support development and conservation efforts. Our team sits within something we call the Climate and Resilience Hub, which is a kind of cross-business collection of experts in on climate and resilience and uh, as they impact on people, economy, etc. And that's a, that's a kind of a global business. So we're doing this stuff all, all around the world. Incredible. And you, you mentioned a term, parametric insurance. Would you please kind of define for our audience what that is? It, it took me a little time to wrap my mind around it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So uh, the insurance industry is not particularly well known for it its pace of innovation. And we kind of joke that it's been writing the same insurance contracts for 250 years. And, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of truth to, to that, to that joke. So what parametric insurance is actually quite a, quite a shift in the way we think about insurance. And it, it means that your payment for your insurance contract is made on the basis of the measurement of a, a kind of an independent parameter, which is used as a proxy for what the impact is going to be that you're insuring against. So if you imagine uh, you have a house and your house is prone to uh, hurricanes. So you're in, you know, you're on the Florida, um, Southeast Florida area or in the Caribbean somewhere. And uh, a traditional insurance policy would show you against the damage that, that a hurricane might do. And, you know, the hurricane would happen, you have some damage, you, you'd think, well, you know, that's going to cost me X to put back together. Insurance company will send a loss adjuster to go and tell you it will cost you X minus, you know, whatever yeah. To, yeah. to put it back together. And you'll come to some agreement, which you'll, you'll be unhappy with. The insurance company will <laughs> grudgingly pay, pay you pay you that amount. Um, and that process takes time. It takes money to, to execute that process. With parametric insurance, what we do is write a contract which says that we think that your house is going to 
we don't actually do this for individual houses. I should caveat that. So, <laughs> but but if, if we were to, we would say, okay, we think you know, at 100 mile an hour winds, your your house is going to get X thousand dollars of damage. And so, if 100 mile an hour winds happen at the location of your house, then we will pay you that X thousand pounds. We won't need to come and look see what's damaged. We'll we'll pay you on the basis that. Uh, that that wind speed occurred in, in that case, and that can happen, you know, within days of of that wind speed having been measured or modelled and being reported by an independent kind of arbiter, if you like, which is independent to both of the parties to the contract. And so it's not direct indemnification; it's uh, it's kind of derived indemnification. And um, what we look for is parameters which are a very good proxy for the impact that we're trying to capture. And you can't insure against something that isn't going to have an impact on you because that's then not insurance. So we have to demonstrate that there's a link between this parameter that we're measuring and what the needs are going to be for you, which you're trying to protect yourself again through this insurance. And one of the really interesting or useful aspects of parametric insurance is that you don't need to own an asset to use parametric insurance. You have to have an insurable interest in that asset. And that basically means that if that asset gets broken or destroyed or damaged, then there has to be an impact on you. It could you know, interrupt your livelihood, interrupt the benefits that you're getting from that to support your livelihood, et cetera. If you have an insurable interest, you can take out a parametric insurance instrument to protect you against that interruption of whatever service you're getting from that asset. And- are you mostly insuring coral reefs or all types of marine ecosystems? We're mostly insuring all sorts of other things, actually. Um, I mean, the <laughs> coral reefs uh, and other ecosystem stuff has come around relatively recently. You know, my my background is actually um, as a physical scientist and I'm actually a volcanologist. So I started my uh, early on in my career, I got to manage a volcanic crisis in the Caribbean and saw then, you know, how I could apply my science to, you know, very practical kind of tools and, and uh, outcomes to, to help people manage bad situation. And so, you know, my, my, my history has been in setting up programs which use parametric insurance to, to generate financial flows very quickly after big disasters, which can help governments or in, even individuals, but also kind of risk aggregators. So financial institutions, credit unions, those sorts of uh, institutions who, whose clients all get impacted by um, a natural disaster and who in the very short term kind of need, need a capital injection, really, uh, need some money to, 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 to get back up on their feet. Uh, we haven't been trying to insure them against all of the impact, but to, to try and get them money very quickly so, because that always improves eventual outcomes. If people could start recovery more quickly. So that's what we've really been focused on and translating that into the, the ocean and coastal marine um, ecosystem space has been, again, a gradual progression. Um, I dived on a reef after a hurricane in the Caribbean when I was working on the volcano, saw what damage it did, but also kind of saw how much debris on the reef was washing around in the weeks, you know, the couple of weeks afterwards, right. um, which was doing way more damage than the original, the original impact. So getting that stuff off the reef very quickly is right. incredibly useful for the long-term impacts on the reef. And that got us to, well, you know, who's going to pay for that cleanup operation? And traditional con- conservation organizations don't have a lot of liquidity. They don't have a lot of cash sitting around. Right. All their donors want them to be spending that on programs. 
So this is a way of getting financing very quickly. And that then prompted the, these brigades to be set up and to become much more organized, which okay. again is, is beneficial. You mentioned uh, wind speeds, but for marine ecosystems, what are some other important parameters that you look out for? So hurricanes in general are important in the areas that are cyclone prone. And so that and a lot of the tropical areas where you know the main coral reefs are 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 such. Um, not all of them. Um, hurricanes don't actually uh, cyclones don't occur within roughly five degrees north and south of the equator. So there is a band, uh, you know, 10 degrees wide where, um, where, where, where it isn't relevant, but most of the rest of the world's warm water reefs are, uh, are affected. So that's a key one. And we can kind of parameterize, we can characterize hurricanes in different ways, but actually wind speed is a pretty good general parameter for the intensity of the hurricane. Obviously, it's not the wind that's doing the damage, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reasonable proxy most of the time. We're also looking at coral bleaching, so ocean, ocean heat waves, characterizing those, and we can capture those very, very well these days by through satellite information in real time. You know, that could be useful both as an indicator of, a, of an on, oncoming uh, bleaching event. And if we can create you know, funding flows in the early stages of a bleaching event, that, that can be deployed to, to help in, in harvesting corals, for example, uh, you know, looking for species to put into a, a, a protected environment while the bleaching event is going on and then replanting, et cetera. So there's, there's various actions which, if financing was available at the early stages of, a, of an ocean heat wave, that um, could be really useful. We're also doing rainfall, which causes runoff and pollution. Um, so pollution events, distinct pollution events. They're the, they're the three, month, three main ones that we've looked into for coral reefs. But we're also looking into other potential parameters for beach erosion, general swells and, and uh, wave, wave height, for example. So yeah, there's, there, there are various things that we're looking at. Um, but it's important that we are able to, you know, not necessarily measure those parameters directly, but be able to get a measurement of them independently and in real time. So in, in real time, I mean, within, you know, hours to a few days. Uh, and so most of that information tends to be most useful when it's coming from satellites because satellites are fully independent. There's good algorithms which tend to work globally so we can deploy that anywhere in the world using the same approaches, which is really useful for scaling this this kind of um, these mechanisms. Wow. Last year I was in Honduras when a big hurricane hit oh, right. like in Nicaragua. The island I was uh -huh. on didn't get hit so directly. However, waves were enormous and, you know, I was diving there. So I saw kind of from one day until like, you know, the water finally cleared up uh, 10 days later, all this coral overturned, just like, you know, a lot of sand covering stuff, which of course, like you said, if you can respond quickly, can you can make a difference. But if you just let it sit there, then there can be a lot of extra destruction in the aftermath. And I was wondering, so say this money kicks in, what organizations are receiving this money and how, how are they activating people to do the work on this kind of, you know, it sounds like a pretty big scale in order to make a difference in the short term? Uh, so the program that we're uh, mainly working on and, and which started, you know, the conversation started 10 years ago for me is the Mesoamerican Reef Fund. And the Mesoamerican Reef Fund is an um, umbrella trust fund that uh, has national members from each of the four Mesoamerican reef countries, including uh, Honduras and then Guatemala, Belize and Mexico. 
And um, a few years ago, the Mesoamerican Reef Fund got a an endowment from the German government, um, which they uh, they couldn't spend the money, but they could spend the interest that was made on that on that money. And what they did was they set up an emergency fund. And that emergency fund is funded through the, the proceeds from the endowment. There's a regular income coming into that emergency fund. But and what we're doing with the insurance is effectively giving them the ability to scale up that emergency fund very quickly for a regular annual payment of premium. Uh, they get to, when they need that money to put together a response, that money comes in from the insurance payout. And so what's in the emergency fund goes from a few tens of thousands of dollars to a few hundreds of thousands of dollars when they need it, and then they spend that. It works really well where it's, it's leveraging an existing mechanism, financing mechanism. Yeah. So then the emergency fund has been built alongside a financial training um, initiative by the MAR, led by the MAR fund with, with the Nature Conservancy, putting together, organizing these brigades of reef responders. There are a number of these, these brigades all along the Mesoamerican Reef, um, you know, they, they are, they tend to have an area that they're based and that is, they have an interest in, okay. but they, you know, they can be deployed to other places as well. And these are groups which have a leader. Um, they have response plans, written response plans. They have budgets for what it's going to cost them. They have pre-agreed rates for boat hire, for supplies, all of these things. They have a, a cache of supplies as well. Um, so they can really be activated very, very quickly. They know what they're going to be doing. They have a protocol that they're following. They have the permissions to be on the reef, which is really important, of course. Um, th those are already locked in and that's, you know, the governments are collaborating here. So this has all been set up. It's very clear that having the financing has actually incentivized those brigades to get more organized. Right. They're prepared to put in the effort because they know that you know, when the time comes, they will have the funding to be able to go and do what they want to be doing. I think that's a really big step forward that sometimes can get lost if you're just talking about financial instruments, etc. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it really does motivate you if you know that what you want to do is, is actually going to get funded, and it's not going to stretch and, and get kind of borrowed from other programs that you might be interested in, which is you know, traditionally what's happened if there has been any kind of organized response. Incredible. I, I think I just understood it for the first time on like a new level. <laughs> and, and that's really neat. For these brigades, how many operate along the coast? And you said they, the different governments, I guess, collaborate on organization and stuff, it sounds like. Yeah. So the, I mean, the Meso-American Refund has a part of the governance of the of the fund. It's a great example and was a really good first full deployment of this thinking into into practice because they they already have those links. But there are, and I'm I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, but they I I know that there are at least three, probably more in Mexico. There's a couple in Belize. There's at least one in Guatemala, and there's at least two in Honduras. So. There's, you know, there, there are six or seven that I know of covering all the countries. And this is, you know, this is really kind of taken off or, or being ongoing. Um, and a lot, a lot of the protocols, the basic kind of protocol template was actually a work that the Nature Conservancy led on, you know, and that's absolutely transferable elsewhere in the world. And, you know, that TNC support the Reef Resilience Network, as I'm sure you guys, you know, are very well aware. And so... As part of that, you know, this is starting to get built into 
kind of reef management protocols, etc. So it's a really great program. And what we're finding is we're, we're, we're just starting to expand it into the into the rest of the Caribbean. So the insular, the island, island Caribbean. And we've identified the Caribbean Biodiversity Fund as the aggregating agent, if you like, for, for, for that area. They have member national funds in many of the islands. So, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely good to have an entity that works across multiple reef areas, multiple protected areas, multiple countries, because there's a lot of uh, cross-learning and, um, and you know, power in, in being kind of bigger and doing things all together. And, and similar entities are going to, you know, exist other places in the world for sure. Um, so we think that that model is transferable pretty well. It also makes financial sense from an insurance perspective to have a, a single entity that holds the insurance policy because we can get some benefits. One, one hurricane isn't going to hit all of the reef areas of the Mesoamerican reef all, all at the same time. So we get, yeah. we get what we call diversification, which makes the insurance tool more efficient. Even with that diversification that you mentioned, you know, with climate change and hurricanes and ocean acidification and everything increasing, how, how does this make sense financially? That's what I was wondering a little bit. <laughs> No, it's a, it's a great question and absolutely the question that we need to answer. You know, insurance is, it's not free um, and um, and it is, I would argue that it's not necessarily a kind of a luxury kind of product, which it, it's seen as in some in some contexts, but, but you do need to make the case for paying for insurance when you could be spending that money on, on direct conservation work, let's say. So, you know, with climate change, as you said, the the overall risk of a, a reef getting hit by a hurricane is increasing. It's increasing sporadically and reasonably slowly. Um, we hope. Um, <laughs> so, but but one of the interesting things about parametric insurance is that the pricing for that insurance is uh, much closer to the analysis that we've done of the chances of an event happening. So let's say our trigger for our parametric insurance is 100 mile an hour winds. We we can do a pretty detailed and um, well-constrained analysis about what that probability is at, at a point on the ground. So there's very little uncertainty around that. Let's say it's, there's a one in 10 year chance of you know 100 mile an hour winds happening in some point on the ground in Belize. So one insurance company might say, uh, we think it's a one in nine year you know, probability. Another one might say we think it's a one in eleven year probability. But you know, they're they're gonna they're gonna give you a price which assumes that the the risk that they're taking on is roughly what you think it is. And that isn't always the case. In many forms of insurance, the insurance company will have a big advantage in terms of understanding what the risk is and will will therefore has an advantage in terms of how they price that. So they're gonna price it to their advantage. So a lot of what we do is to make sure that we've got the analytics such that we can go to the insurance market and say, we think this is the price that you should be charging for this risk and get them to, you know, to just charge that risk. And fortunately, with, with projects like the reef insurance, there's lots of, there's lots of insurance companies who want to, to be part of that, you know, genuinely not trying to, you know, making some money, but that not being you know, the, the absolute overarching motivation, they, you know, they genuinely want to see insurance deployed and they see this as a, a really good access point to do that. So we can get pretty 
pretty attractive pricing, let's say. We're, we're very keen to, uh, you know, to carry on bringing to the table and scale up as well. But then the other thing is having that money really quickly is really, really valuable. Yeah. Um, and we did a, a real back of the envelope cost benefit analysis for rapid cleanup of reefs. And, um, and, you know, you can make some really conservative assumptions for the Mesoamerican reef, for example. The, the main economic services are for fisheries, for tourism, and for coastal protection. And it's a multi-billion dollar annually service provision. If you if you want to put a number on it, I don't necessarily think that you know we 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 should only be talking in those terms. But we absolutely have to pay attention to that. So if you interrupt those services for a year, let's say. That's a several billion dollar loss. And if you can shorten that to six months, for example, by getting on the reef really, really quickly, mitigating the amount of damage that's done to the reef, and therefore those, those services get back up to where they were before more quickly, then you've saved yourself half of that cost effectively. Right. And that, that's a real cost, right? As people whose livelihoods depend on the, on the reef and the services it's providing. So, so if we think about it in that, those terms, Paying, paying a little bit more to have that money exactly when you need it, and then the co-benefits of having those organized brigades, et cetera, it absolutely makes financial sense. And it's absolutely nuts not to do it, actually. <laughs> um, so, you know, now that's not the same as, as getting premium from someone to pay to a, you know, a commercial insurance company, and you might not get any claims for a few years. So there's absolutely still uh, a story to be told. But I, I think the underpinning economic argument is actually pretty strong for the use case that you know we've been discussing and for other use cases but not for all use cases and so i think we do have to be able to answer those sorts of questions um and, and make the case that insurance is a good use of uh, of resources in your opinion what are what are some of the biggest challenges in the valuation of marine ecosystem services i think the the fundamental challenge is it's not quantifying them because there's, you know, there's there's great progress being made. There's good standards around that. It's it's mainstreaming that value into our global economic modus operandi. Um, and friend Ralph Shami um, tells this way better than I I do because he's a I am you know a professional economist who's worked in the IMF for for a very long time. But you know he describes it as things don't have a value until somebody's prepared to pay something for it. So, so, you know, there's a there's a value on paper, but there's not anybody paying for those services, right? Not, not on a day-to-day basis. They're public goods, which people know that they're using, um, but mainstreaming that into being recognized in the economy and therefore being able to drive investment into it to protect it, for example, um, is, is re- a real challenge. I think we're making progress on that. Some of the regulations that are coming in Particularly in the UK and Europe, but but will be in the US fairly soon on on climate disclosure, for example. They'll, they'll be followed by similar kind of regulation on uh, on nature biodiversity disclosure. Uh, I think that 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 helps enormously um, because it it means that people have to start quantifying what their impacts are on those, you know, and that impact will be in terms of lost value, right? Um, and so. You know, I think that we're getting there, but it's a slow process and our economic system more broadly is not very well geared up to recognizing those those values. But yeah, I, I, I have seen a big change starting to happen in the last, even the last three years, I would say, where 
we're starting to to speak something of the same language um, across these different very different spaces. And I, I would call out one name, which is Mark Carney, who has been really at the forefront of this, not so much on the kind of the nature and biodiversity side, but certainly on the climate side. And that's going to that that's carved a really really good um, kind of path uh, that I think that the kind of na- nature conservation ecosystem space can can follow. So that wraps up today's episode. You've heard the first part of our interview with Simon. There's a lot more exciting stuff to come. I wanted to share a quote from part two in order to whet your appetite a little bit. This is from Simon, of course. There's no reason why public works budgets shouldn't include money for the protection of the reef. And we are absolutely in discussions with governments around this kind of thinking. So please come back for our next episode. It'll be out in a couple of weeks. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Reef Roundup podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please take a moment and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to add us on Instagram at Reef Roundup for news about the ocean, inspiring stories, and more. You can also find more about us as well as our guests at reefroundup.com. We release a new episode every two weeks. See See you soon. soon.